Okay. Alaric, thank you so much for joining me here today. Um, I'm sure you're going to teach us a lot of things. What do we need to know? Okay. So that's a good question. My question to you is, what is a child? What is a child? I'm trying to follow Matt Walsh here with what is a woman? What is a child? It's, uh, it's not an adult. Let's begin there. So um, children obviously go through various stages of development from natal all the way up until puberty and becoming young adults. And there's a lot of different stages. Um, and it's really important to understand those stages they go through because those stages are uh, indicative of 99.9% of children's cognitive ability. It follows a fairly clear pattern, and most of the models that we have, they've been tested for at least 80, 90 years, or have been in development for 80, 90 years. So that's quite a long time to say, okay, this model is factual or not factual. Um, one of the models we have are... Uh, Vygotsky, another one is Piaget, and we have Brunner. And basically, these different theories, they have a lot of overlap. I don't know if you've, if you've had a look at, in detail at some of these, but they basically say Piaget the same thing. in graduate school. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they're actually saying the same thing, but from a slightly different angle, if we look at how they break up the, the stages of development they kind of correlate to each other in, in many ways. Um, so if we look at Vygotsky, he said social interaction influences cognitive development, which is very important. That is, yeah, that is uh, nurture over nature. That means children are strongly influenced by the environment they're in. And we can see that. We've, we've seen how, for example, identical twins are given up for adoption by different parents in different places. And even though they have some similar innate abilities because of being identical twins, the results are often very different because of the environment that they're brought up in. So that's a very good example that shows that the environment can strongly affect what happens to a child. Um, obviously, things like natural resilience and all that could be a factor, but still the environment will have um, a strong effect. Then we have the uh, biological and cultural development. And we can say that these don't occur in isolation from each other. They, they feed off each other. So you have many variables. The problem many times is people do a, a univariate analysis and it just doesn't work. Because there's so many factors that interact. And another one is that language plays a major role in cognitive development. So the type of language you're talking, English, French, Chinese, Arabic, it's going to affect the thinking style. That's been very much proven. That also ties into the culture. Um, but then even within the same language, the, the, the dialect you're using or your understanding of words, the ideology you follow, it changes uh, 
your perception of things. We, we saw with the documentary, What is a Woman, right? It should be a fairly easy question to answer, an adult human female. But even speaking the same language, just a different ideology that suddenly becomes impossible to answer out of fear or you really don't know, I don't know, but uh, it then becomes an issue to actually understand something just from that perspective. Um, so, uh, Pierre, not Pierre, sorry, Vygotsky, he was also talking about the zone of proximal development. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine the rings of a tree, uh, the center zone is the area that a child already knows, this knowledge. Then we have an outer ring where it's going to expand to. This is what a child can, can achieve through work. So this is the cognitive, the zone of cognitive development. And then outside that, we have a range that's too far. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you can teach a child to parrot off things that are further out, but they're not going to understand it. They're just parroting it. So a lot of indoctrination works that way. A child is not ready for something, but they keep having it hammered onto them, and it just becomes part of them because they basically they just parrot it on. Cults mm -hmm. work in a similar way. You don't need to understand it. You just need to parrot it. And a lot of propaganda works that way as well. Basically, mm -hmm. the more you repeat it, the more brain connections you have. And eventually, you'll just believe it, whether you want to or not. Right. It makes sense if you think about different cultures around the world, even when the differences between them are relatively benign yet they have extremely different standards, let's say of beauty or different traditions that make perfect sense to them. But then maybe, you know, a Western sensibility comes in and says, you know, I don't even understand how that makes sense to these people because we have our way that we were raised and spoken to and they have theirs. And um, it's really important for people to understand that, that they, that's part of them. It's not like you can just tell them something new and they go, Oh, okay. You know, it's part of the, how the brain is, has developed. Right. So what Pierre, uh, I keep saying Piaget, what Vygotsky was getting at is that the children will naturally try to emulate the adults. Mm -hmm. So traditionally, um, a lot of emulation came from obviously the mother because the mother was traditionally the person that stays at home. And the population, uh, especially when Vygotsky was, was forming these, most of the population was not actually in cities. They were in the countryside. We have now an inversion of populations. For most of history, the larger populations were in the countryside. Cities couldn't really support that many people. You have exceptional cases like Rome, which in its heyday had about a million people or uh, really huge cities like Nineveh with a very huge urban sprawl, and they've recorded very high ancient uh, populations. But generally speaking, countryside populations were high. Cities were not that large. Uh, so parents influenced the child, or a caregiver would influence the child. 
so that could be a nurse or a nanny or maid or whatever that that country had um now we have someone who spends many many hours a day with children who would that be the hmm. teacher so for better okay. or worse a majority of the influence is going to come from a teacher and what Vygotsky was saying is that um, language is a means to transmit information to a child. Most children are fairly stupid. I'm sorry to say that, but they don't have a, uh, a power of insight. They generally believe what adults tell them, especially if they trust that adult, like a teacher. So they're just going to internalize whatever they get told. Um, mm -hmm. And then language becomes a very powerful tool for intellectual adaptation or even abuse you can use it both ways if you're teaching children the right thing or if you're teaching them the wrong thing which is somewhat concerning so if we then go to piaget he he broke the stages of development into four stages sensory motor pre-operational concrete operational and then formal operational so sensory motor is from birth to two years. And this is where a child is understanding the world through senses and actions. So by doing something. Because they don't have that language capability yet. Of course, in all these stages, actually, even before birth, children are learning language. But they're not at the stage where they can actually create output. It's still in the, the, the processing stage. So then it moves on two to seven years, which is pre-operational. And they're starting to understand the world through language now. And um, if you've ever, I'm sure you have, seeing as you've had children, uh, yeah. from two to seven years old, have you found that once they start to learn to talk, do they ever shut up? Yeah, it depends on the child, but you typically, yes, they, they talk and... Yeah, and and um, it's it's fascinating to watch and to listen because you can learn a whole lot about them in terms of their personality tendencies or traits. And people are born with certain traits by what they choose to talk about and how they choose to talk about it. But they do pretty much talk, and in fact, it it is a sign of something not quite right if they don't. Right. So if you don't have a child who at the age of three is a little a little bit of a chatterbox, at least in private, in other words, at least when they're amongst the people they're comfortable around, some children are innately shy and so they don't do it outside the house. But if they aren't chattering or, you know, even if it doesn't make a lot of sense, that's a sign that something might be amiss. Right. So, yes. Mm -hmm. So so that's that's what we're getting at. That's that's normal, actually, because now all that input that they've been taking, they're starting to create output. They're putting all those mm -hmm. different things together and right. output begins. And the more skill they have, generally, the more the more they talk in the, in the beginning. Well, interestingly, there, there is something called a late talker. I did want to throw this out there because I'm right. sure as anything, I will have somebody in the audience who says, what about Thomas Sowell's son? Okay, there are late talkers. Right, and right. they have been mis misdiagnosed as having a you know a deficit when actually in very very many cases they're extraordinarily bright um but as i said something amiss could be 
just something amiss. I'm not making a judgment call. Okay. Just no, no, it no, at that. no, no. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's <laughs> a bit of a there. sensitive area for some parents, it obviously. Is. It is. Um, yes. But yeah, it's, it's what is typical is what you're describing. Average is what you're describing. Okay? Yes. And for most of these things, we have to go with typical development because that's the most applicable in most cases. So correct. Don't be upset. Hold your horses in this context. <laughs> we're talking about this. Um, happens all the time. I'll be like, what about yeah, like, yeah. that's that's an exception yeah. to the rule, yes. Unfortunately, right. there's many exceptions to the rules. Um, and then I did want to um, I'm yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I before we went too far down the you know this path, I wanted to and away from what you said about children basically believing what they're told. Right. I have an anecdote from my own life. And I think it's worth sharing because it's about something so innocuous and it was, it was meant as a joke, but it shows you even when adults are joking or teasing with kids, how kids can believe what they say, because they also aren't very good at picking up on, uh, you know, wit and certain kinds of advanced humor and so forth. And this is a story from when I was roughly eight years old. Um, so certainly not a baby. And I heard the expression clay pigeon. I just heard somebody say the word or whatever. And I asked my father what a clay pigeon was. And I don't know why he decided to do this. I don't know why he didn't tell me it's for skeet shooting or explain what skeet shooting was. But he said, it's a pigeon that f sits on the back of an elephant and picks bugs out of the clay that has gathered there after they've rolled in the mud. And I considered Seems my father plausible. like, oh, it, it was sounded plausible to me, an eight-year-old kid. I, I mean, I was already reading, you know, chapter books. And I mean, from the age of three or four, I was reading pretty proficiently. But he said it in a way that I later learned was his clay pigeon voice. So in other okay. words, this, so he had a way of doing it, but I didn't recognize it. He was just my dad. He was the smartest person I personally knew. If for most kids, the smartest person I know is their mom, their dad, or their teacher. Yep. And so I believed him. I was embarrassingly old when it I revealed when I said something about the clay pigeon, and my father said, You you believed that? I I was kidding. Like he actually didn't even know. Because we didn't right. have occasion to really discuss okay. it every day. And so from then on, it became a clay pigeon story. So okay. in our family, when somebody would tell a fib or just kind of like joke with somebody, they I would say, is this a clay pigeon story? Or is this, or is this for real? But I just wanted to say that because I think it's a good example of how we adults forget that they are not little miniature versions of us. Right. They're gullible. Let's put it that way. They are so gullible. gullible. They believe... They believe what we tell them. Absolutely, right. they do. So that's that's basically the point we're getting to. Um, yeah. Children are gullible, and therefore that that development you have to be careful. It's it's not it's not a machine that you want to throw a spanner into, because you you sure. can you can mess it up, and that's a that's a growing child. Um, so if we go to the next step, which is 7 to 12 years old, at this stage, kids start with the logical thinking. But as you said, you were eight and it wasn't fully there. I mean, this is just, this is the starting. 
So at this stage, you're starting to put things into categories and trying to start with logical thinking, if this, therefore A, and probably because your dad had so clearly explained that this is how it worked is probably why you fell for it more because it was authoritative. Okay, that, that makes sense. Well, there's an ox pecker and that picks the ticks off the ox. So, I mean, there must be a clay pigeon which does it for elephants. Yeah. Draw two conclusions exactly. because this is categorization stage and you're less wise about the world, so you're going to believe it. Um, and then from 12 years onwards, you start to be able to think hypothetically if A, then also B, slowly starting to get there and thinking about things a little bit more scientifically, being a little bit less gullible. So that's generally why we look at 12 years on to 14 years on, and they can be quite smart in some of the observations they make. But you could still probably pull a clay pigeon on them if, if you try. Yeah. Um, and then we go to Brunner, Jerome Brunner, and he put basically three, three stages. So inactive, which is action-based, iconic, so that's image-based, and then symbolic, which is language-based. And for him, inactive was zero to one years. A lot of these overlaps, though. Um, so this is physical action. For example, uh, there's a baby rattle, and the baby shakes it, and then they realize, okay, this makes a sound, and this toy is fun. So they draw this conclusion based on the physical thing. Uh, if, I, if I push the ball, it will roll. Okay, these seem like really basic things, and they are, but it's really important to, to know this, to get onto more complex ideas. That's what their brain can handle. Then one to six years old, they're very visual. And that's why if we see advertisements that are aimed at children, they're very noisy, they're very bright, they move fast, and uh, they, they're designed to catch children's attention. So children like colorful things at this stage. Uh, that's really important to remember. One to six years, children like colorful things. Most children. Doesn't matter if they're a boy and a girl. Keep that in your mind. And then from seven years onwards, um, they are getting more into the language because they actually have the ability. Uh, the way he breaks it up is a bit different to Piaget, but it's still fairly on the same point. And he also was saying that language directly affects cognition and the ability to recognize things. So we have this, this pattern. Vygotsky said language is important. Piaget said it's important. Uh, Brunner said it's important. None of this has been disproved in all the time that these theories have been out there. So we would assume that as these theories have been out there so long that they would have been disproved by now if they were uh, in fact wrong. So when we're talking about that zero to one age group, for example, if we have a picture book, the baby is going to be playing with the picture book, but they don't really recognize what these pictures are. It's just a colorful thing to them. They don't recognize this as a book 
unless the parents have been saying that all the time, they still don't really know what a book is because that abstract idea is not really possible for them to make. Then we get to the iconic stage and now they can actually start to put things in real life uh, and make a connection between what's in the book and real life. So, for example, if there's a picture of a dog in the book, they may recognize, well, this is a dog because I have a dog or there is a dog in the house. They may not recognize ownership of said dog, but they're starting to put a connection between these two things. So their understanding of reality is is not really as concrete as we might imagine it to be. Another very important point to make. Right. And all of this is important for us to know because when people in positions of authority or, you know, over our children, people who are telling us about our children, be they doctors, teachers, education researchers, are telling us what's good for them, what's best for them. If we don't have this knowledge that you're giving us about their stages of development, what is and is not age appropriate for that, it would be very easy for us to behave just like those children and believe them, especially when they are telling us these things authoritatively right? and in great detail. Unfortunately so. So if we if we have a look at a lot of the videos coming out online, unfortunately, of we can say unfortunately, but also fortunately, because at least we now know what's going on. Uh, the the COVID story has been a bit of a two-edged sword. So it's it's allowed a lot of parents to see what's going on behind the closed doors of classrooms by some people with um, some less than savory intentions and some people that I feel may perhaps have good intentions that are very severely warped out of uh, the context that they need to be in. So, uh, yeah, they, they might, they might think they're doing something good when they're really not, but unfortunately that the result is the same regardless of right. the intention behind it. Yeah. Right. The road to hell and all. Well, yeah, if, if, I, if I drove a car and I drove it over, over someone, meaning to or not meaning to, unfortunately, the result is the same. Yeah, doesn't do that person any good. So these days we've been seeing what's going on and some teachers posting things like their queer theories and all these things that they are pushing on very young children. And as we've seen from developmental theories that, you know, children cannot understand this. They're parroting it and it confuses them because they simply don't understand. So if you get a three or four year old child and you take a Ken Barbie doll Mm -hmm. and you put a wig on it Mm -hmm. and you ask the child, is this a boy or a girl? What are they going to tell you? They're going to tell you it's a girl just because their association of a girl is someone with long hair, generally. That's how children make the distinction. When they get Mm -hmm. a bit older, they'll say, oh, it's a guy with long hair. But there's quite a lot of development that happens before they're able to recognize that. So uh, we see 
teachers telling children that I'm not a boy and not a girl, it's confusing to children because they don't understand it. Because this is a modern phenomenon. Yeah. Um, and the problem is, if we look historically, the, uh, the queer movement and the pedophilia normalization movement have a very strong common ancestor. And that all started with uh, Kinsey and also with John Money. And then what happened was uh, the intersectional feminist movement got hold of this idea that, you know, sex and gender are not the same thing. So let's run with this idea. It will be an emancipation from, from the patriarchy. And they right. basically ran with that idea. And the other side, which were... The, the radical feminists at that time, they said, well, we're not running with that idea. So that camp kind of split in half. That's why we see at the moment that the British side who are very much against the, the queer theory and then we have the American side, which is more intersectional in their approach. And that means that they're all for it. And that's why this problem seems to be spreading much faster in America and unfortunately Australia and New Zealand as well because they're more inclined to that direction. Um, we have a lot of people in academia too that are trying to normalize this as, as a normal thing. Now, why are we talking about queer and the pedophile movement in the same in the same sentence. Well, we talked about that Barbie doll, the Ken Barbie doll with a wig. Mm -hmm. It's confusing to children because they assume that that person is a, uh, a girl just because of that. We then have uh, things like drag queen hours and drag queen readings and all these different kinds of things. We have teachers that are dressing up as the opposite sex as well. Um, it's confusing to children. And a lot of what we call grooming is a breakdown of the natural defenses that children have. So children are naive. Children are gullible. But they also have a kind of natural instinctive reflex. So I'll ask you a question and I'll ask your viewers a question and you can just reflect on how it was, okay? How far can you remember back to when you were young? Obviously eight. About three. Three? Okay. Wow, About that's, three. That's, that's far back. Let's go to, let's pick a number that most people can attain, which is, let's say, 10 years old. Okay. Um, so you're 10 years old. Imagine you're 10, people watching, you're 10, whether you're a man or a woman, doesn't matter. Uh, mm -hmm. This works a bit less so for, for boys, but it, it, it's fairly on average the same. So imagine you're 10, okay, and you're by yourself. And I was going to use Korean for a moment. Um, <laughs> my brain has too many languages. A man that you don't know suddenly appears where you are. What is your what is your feeling now? You're by yourself. A man just appears. Are you comfortable? No, <laughs> definitely not. 
definitely not. not. That's mm -hmm. fairly similar for for girls and boys. Boys generally a little bit less of a strong reaction, but girls definitely. I've I've done this experiment with maybe 140 people so far, and the reaction has been fairly similar. Um, how about if a woman you don't know shows up? You're still 10, and there's a random woman that shows up. Yeah, it, it's a lot less than the man, but it's interesting you mention it. I'm going to start sizing up the woman and looking, even at 10, and looking at her looks. You know what I mean? So in other words, I'm going to be looking at her physical presence and what other markers she has, but my initial reaction is going to be less fight or flight. Right. Right. So, and of course, then it's going to depend where I am when this person shows up. Sure, you know. sure. There's there's a lot of variables to take into account, but we're just talking right. on average. Um, on average, yeah. So a strange woman shows up and, you know. You, yeah. You're probably going to be much less concerned than a man, just, just on average. You said Absolutely. you size her up. Does she look kind? Does she look friendly? Is her tone of voice mm -hmm. friendly? Uh, does she have the more feminine she's going to be? I mean, literally, when I said I size her up is I'm going to be even at 10. What I would likely be looking at is her level of, you know, external sort of feminine traits, if you will, maybe more if she's smaller, more petite and not super muscular. If she has longer hair, if she just has, you said, like a softer voice, they're going to be certain traits that I would look at and say less threatening right. and like another example from the run around the same age i had fourth grade teacher and then a fifth grade teacher and i remember going into my fourth grade class and immediately being on edge with my teacher and she it was a female but she was very hard-edged okay. she had short hair she had a very deep voice she had a very hard way of speaking and i was much more like you know, on my guard. When I went to fifth grade, my teacher had, you know, long, pretty hair. She wore skirts every day. She had a higher pitched voice. And the way, you know, it's not so much the pitch of it. It's the way she spoke to us. Like we weren't miniature adults. <laughs> she just spoke to, but she wasn't sing-songy. She was just softer. And right. I remember feeling more comfortable. So even like you said, how far back do you remember? I have very vivid memories of childhood. And those two different feelings are vivid in my mind. And it went, I was using heuristics. I was using her, their looks. I had nothing else. And the sound of voice, I had nothing else to go on. Nothing. Right. Okay. So that is a very basic reaction that we see with kids everywhere. They kind of size an adult up. Now that's a basic instinct. We, if we look at babies, for example, which is, which is why, you know, uh, Ibram Kendi is very wrong. Uh, babies don't recognize things like race. It's not an yeah. issue to them because you don't care about that. What you care as, as a baby is your primary caregiver. So your primary caregiver in 99.9% .9 of cases is your mother. So you're going to look for indications of people who are similar to your mother. And that will become your in-group. Why? That is how you survive. When you cry, that is the person that comes to say, okay, you're hungry here, have a meal. Uh, 
So kids pick up on verbal and visual cues, not skin color. When we're talking about uh, these verbal cues, it can be even the kind of dialect she's using, the language she's using. If I, for example, get a, a Chinese baby and I'm speaking English, the reaction will be very different if I'm speaking the dialect that that baby is used to hearing in Chinese. Because right. now I'm in group and now I'm a potential protector or a potential giver of something. So that's how children's minds work. Um, coming back, because I have a tendency to derail myself completely, uh, coming back to the development, children are going to try and pick up on cues that they find of someone friendly like that. So something relatable, like they're, they're something similar to their parents, perhaps. If they don't have parents that are particularly wonderful people, unfortunately, there are people that are not particularly wonderful as parents. Yeah, they could be abusive or the home environment might not be very good. They're going to pick up on anything else that indicates that this person is a protection to me or for my long-term well-being. They care about me. Kids automatically hone in on that. So if you have a teacher that is pretending to be very caring about the students and that student has a difficult home life, it's very easy for them to get pulled into that affection, even if that teacher does not have their best interest in heart. And uh, the more fun and the more appealing they make it look, the more likely it is to work. So we look at the, the teachers teaching this this queer ideology to their children they use a lot of bright colors we see these flags being made they're all very bright and i actually saw uh it was quite interesting a, a teacher who had put up all these bright flags and then made a heterosexual flag in black and white <laughs> very very boring okay. very dull yeah yeah, yeah. You, you don't want to be like this right that's disturbing rainbow colors right yeah, we had rainbow, rainbow fish you're as a special. Story. Right. if you're like this you're special if you're not like Sparkly. this, you, are, you know you're, you're not that exciting so you know what i don't fit into that group is very important children want to try and fit into the group yeah sorry that is true i was just gonna say i'm sorry to interrupt but i i i don't even know that the home life needs to be particularly unpleasant i think we underestimate how emotionally neglected our children are. Um, I think th these cell phones and devices oh, and televisions and everything have become stand-ins for attention. And the, because parents are also addicted to them, they don't, they don't even notice that no. they have been disassociating um, in terms of their physical and emotional connection from their children. And while you were talking about the different stages, there's something that I'd like to put in people's minds is that with each of these stages, children are also moving extremely gradually away from their attachment to their parents. And I mean, physical and especially mother, especially mom. Remember at one time, the baby was literally physically attached to a person for nine months. And then as they come out of the womb, 
they're moving away from that physical attachment more slowly than any other mammal on the than any other animal on the planet, but certainly even than any other mammal. And and when you get into the uh, ten to eleven year old age, there's a push me pull you game going on, um, and it's even more common in girls, by the way. So that may account somewhat for what we're seeing in girls with the the queer theory stuff and the uh, you know transgender movement. But there's the you know like mommy go away mommy, go away. You know, they want you. They don't want you. They want you. They don't. And when I say they want you, they want hugs. They want physical touch. They want you to brush their hair. They want you to, you know, have the same kind of physical affection that they had when they were younger to, to abruptly withdraw that, which happens sometimes by accident when you put them in daycare, because now they're with a stranger who is in many cases precluded from touching them, except when absolutely necessary. So they're not getting a lot of physical affection. They're not getting a lot of that loving, caring, truly benign touch. And then they go on into kindergarten and it just it just keeps going. So they're cut off rather abruptly from that attachment. And that can, in not all children, but in many children, create a little bit of a wound, a little bit of a sense that I need this kind of affection. I am I wasn't ready to be completely physically cut off from knowing that I'm loved and cared about and that somebody is shielding me and protecting me in a very physical way. And so then if that child gets into an environment with an adult who provides it, it, you, you, it feels good, literally physically feels good, emotionally feels good. And the adults who are doing it ought to know. They ought to know. Now, when a parent is doing it, and of course the parent knows the boundaries and respects the child's boundaries and doesn't just go, you know, hug them when they don't want to be hugged. If they pull away, they let them go and those kind of things. But children don't have the same fear of pushing mom away if they don't feel like a hug or pushing away, you know, dad, if they're, you know, they don't, they don't have the same degree of that. Whereas if it's teacher, it's a little different. Right. When it's a stranger, it's a little different. They're they're socialized to respect this person, defer to this person in a different manner than they are their parents. And yet something in them craves that affection. So there's a confusion, I believe, and also um, a, a kind of discomfort that can be exploited. That's I'm not a yeah, professional, yeah. but that's my feeling as a no, mom. No, that's, that, that's definitely true. I mean, at that stage, you know, children are coming to, we're talk- we we hear this a lot with all this queer theory, but kids are figuring themselves out. They're figuring out an identity, right? How they fit into the world. So it's very easy for them to get drawn into something where they say, "Oh, well, you're this, and this is a positive thing." Um, that's also part of grooming. I mean, if right. we look at look at what grooming entails, one of the main uh, things that groomers do is create some kind of wedge between the parent-child relationship. I mean, there are parents that groom their children too and abuse their children. It's a sad and horrific fact, but uh, there are many cases like that. But we're talking now, obviously, about when an outside party is doing it. What they need to do is separate that child from the parent, the relationship, because that's a protection to the groomer. 
it stops information going to the parent, obviously, and it also gives the groomer more control over the child. So the groomer basically is a replacement for the parent. That's very dangerous. Yeah. So in in situations where abuse happens, that's many times why a child is unable to report abuse until many years after the fact, because that was a trusted person. They completely trusted that person. Mm-hmm. They didn't think anything that that person would do would be bad to them. So this is uh, this is uh, very disconcerting and. That's actually one of the main arguments that that the pro-pedophilia movement latch onto. They're saying, well, you know, it wasn't that the child was upset at that time at me doing that. So what they're saying is, well, basically, it is not that that action was bad, but society's reaction to my action was bad, and therefore my action is not bad, the reaction of society is what caused the trauma to the child. That's what they're saying. I've seen this so many times. It is so horrific. And that is why they're saying that they believe that children can consent. I'm not even joking. Yes. This is the common theme. This is what Nambla has said. This is what Pi in the UK has said. This is what the Dutch Pedophile Association has said, uh, a member of which was arrested this week. Yes, uh, he tried to uh, go to Mexico and he was arrested in Mexico for trying to buy a girl. Uh, and But he's, he's arrested now and hopefully he stays in a Mexican prison and not a cushy Dutch prison. Um, so this is... How do they... Actually- an ideology that's been going for a very long time. And there's this, this kind of perverted circle uh, or, or triad between the Netherlands, the UK, and um, the US. So a lot of US pedophiles, they went to the Netherlands because the laws at that time for child protection were weaker. And then all the groups worked together to make a pedophile research journal which basically justified it and that was called the Pydica and it ran for quite a number of years and involves many professors in many universities that quietly condoned it and also um, members of all basically the pedophile organizations, Pi, Dutch ones were involved, uh, Nambla was involved and um, this ideology is continually being pushed uh, throughout academia and throughout uh, the education system. So we have we have the queer ideology breaking down children's natural defenses, and then we have the pedophile normalization movement saying, well, this should be recognized and destigmatized, and our rights are being abused. Uh, so we have this this pincer attack from both sides on the minds of children and their long-time, long-term well-being. How do they get around the child development argument, though? See, as you pointed out, we've known for a long time. And there's... Well, their, their argument is that that is a natural part of development. 
their argument is that from birth all children are sexual that is the argument they're making we have we have on record individuals saying that well a baby touching themselves is a form of whatever um, even if that were true which it's not but even if that were true that somebody doing self exploration like alone okay right you know in private alone with obviously themselves you know like um is not even close to the same thing as saying i can conceptualize doing this with another person having a relationship with all the risks associated with another person that it's the human brain at that age is not capable neurologically of conceptualizing a sexual relationship it's it's, it's not. simply not it's simply not it's 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 not developed because especially prepubescent children that part of the brain is it's not switched on yet no they, that's what the pituitary the does right right that's that's when everything develops so i mean that age child those parts are not even developed in any way they are for getting rid of bodily waste basically that that's their function until much later when they actually develop properly into uh fully fledged reproductive organs um right these movements are also uh, saying that yes children can consent that's what they believe um that children are aware of this and want a relationship so it's really what they're doing is basically a perversion of the adult child adult parent relationship so they're saying a child wants a meaningful relationship yes children want love and affection that is not love and affection that is a perversion that is degeneracy exploitation that is mm -hmm. only one directional it is not in the child's best interests it is not part of the child's development then we take a look back and they say well the greeks did this and the romans did this blah de blah de blah and you would have to say okay look at the results of those civilizations what happened to them and look at what stage of history those civilizations accepted that it wasn't in the beginning when they were strong cultures it was in the end when they had already given themselves over to every type of decadence and then that is what became acceptable and it wasn't very long until they got well the greeks got mowed into the ground by the romans and the romans got mowed into the ground by all the celtic and germanic peoples didn't do them a lot of good one could we, make a case that yes. it's a sign of a failing civilization right right there's Definitely. enough evidence to support that there's certainly more evidence to support that than they have evidence to support their arguments right Much more um and they're saying well this is a human rights issue it is a human mm. rights issue for children for the child not, not for you <laughs> yes yeah um so we see this um we have and i quote uh, a professor uh that said that these pedophiles should be given high quality child pornography in order to stop them from 
offending? I need I'm, to exploit children to prevent me from exploiting children. Okay. Now the it's argument they're making really is, well, we, we don't need to necessarily give them actual, actual images. It can be AI generated. Uh, okay. There are we know scientifically that there. when you titillate people like this, they are more likely right, to right. offend. That is so, a fact. Exactly. And, um, we also have the same groups. Okay, I'm going to mention two groups who are very, very well documented, prostasia and before you act. Okay. Um, these groups, they are all for normalizing pedophilia, destigmatizing it. Now they say that we are not destigmatizing the action, we are destigmatizing the sexuality. They're saying it's a sexual orientation. That's the main thing that they want. Now, I want viewers to understand that when you do that in most Western countries, you are actually legalizing it because orientation is a protected category. It's a very, very small step from saying it's an orientation to normalization, destigmatization. It just becomes another letter in the alphabet soup. It's something to be concerned about because never say never. And uh, it's, it's getting to the point where that's happening. Now, Prostasia too, they've been researching and they, uh, they put money into finding results that they want. Before you act, it sounds like a lovely name, doesn't it? Think before you act. This is not actually a message to pedophiles. Do you know who this is a message for? This is a message to clinicians. Think before you report that person. It's, it's still on the, the, the pedophile side. So they are very involved with the John Hopkins University. And that's why John Hopkins University has a bad reputation in this area. Um, the founder of Before You Act is Michael Melsheimer, and he was a multi-child rapist, pederast. Um, he was a member of NAMBLA, and he is on record saying that he wanted to make an organization like NAMBLA, but that could use academic sources to justify, basically, pedophilia, and that it is, it is not a disease in his mind. So um, we have these two groups that have a lot of influence and we're seeing this idea continually spread through academia, but it's been around a long time. Like I said, the Paidika, that journal, it has been supported by a lot of academics and there are a lot of academics that are involved in this kind of apologesia of, of the pedophile movement. Interestingly, many of those same academics are also proponents of the queer movement. So we see a connection between the two. Um, there's been a serious breakdown in any kind of social morality, which is what they're aiming for. Mm -hmm. It's all about the self, not, not about the children at all. Um, 
so there's there's so many levels on which this is is very wrong and very unscientific now the problem with this is that um with all these theories is the academic system is designed through a peer review system which is very open to exploitation and gatekeeping which is frightening because academics are sometimes incredibly stupid so what they do is for example you have an idea deborah and you come to me and you tell me about this wonderful idea that you've had and you say it's great isn't it don't you agree with me and then i can say yes or no after looking at at the facts it depends what argument you make but now imagine that a whole lot of like-minded people have said actually being an alcoholic is not that bad and it should be fine to drive a car and now a lot of people get together and then make a paper on that and then you get other people to agree with you and you get other people to agree with you and you publish more papers you write a book about why being an alcoholic is actually good and driving a car is totally fine and safe and you support that with lots of studies that are written from your angle now someone that is not familiar with that they read that what are they going to think well an academic wrote this it must be right it's been done in a scientific way and slowly that idea then becomes solidified as orthodoxy in academia that is why academia has many many terrible ideas that are supported by their followers with a very very strong fervor i mean we can look at lots of things like social darwinism was a terrible idea that ended up killing millions of people and plenty of inherits to that we have um lysenkoism which was in the ussr and it was the science and millions of people starved so they're doing it now with medical they're doing it now i think right. we have medical um, the yeah, the, the whole the whole uh trans children thing is is modern lysenkoism it's this Puberty blockers are very powerful drugs that have very powerful side effects. Lupron is one that's commonly used, and it is used to castrate sex offenders. Um, mm -hmm. this, this came out in the documentary, but it's also used for precocious puberty. So one of the defenses of this is, well, it's used for precocious puberty. We've known about it for 30 years. Yes, we have. It's also one of the medications with a huge list of people that have irreversible health problems. Women with osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, uh, just a plethora of problems. And what happened is they gave this to girls for precocious puberty to alleviate the symptoms. Obviously, the children were under distress. Um, they averaged about six months on this. Now we have women in their 20s with arthritis, osteoporosis, and a whole other plethora of health problems. And what they have in common is that they use Lupron. So 
yes, we've been using this for 30 years and it's been having disastrous consequences, sometimes more disastrous than the things that they were treating for. Yeah. Uh, so to say that you can stop puberty, no. You, you cannot stop something that is a, a normal natural cycle. You can stop it, but there is no way that you're not going to have side effects. It's, it's, it's a moving vehicle and you're throwing a spanner in the works. There's no way it can be normal. This is where we come back to the whole consent thing. We have this wonderful code called the Nuremberg Code. Mm -hmm. And it enshrines that a, a subject of medical attention should, in cases where it is not an emergency be completely aware of said complications of the uh, process or of the treatment that takes place. Because of children's inability to understand this abstract idea, children do not understand the concept of gender, as in gender studies, in gender ideology. Because they cannot understand that complicated concept, which most adults apparently can't understand either if we see that they cannot define what a woman is, then um, it is not possible for them to consent to take medication that will sterilize them, destroy their bones, give them all kinds of health problems, and certainly not for cross-sex hormones that will eventually give them different types of cancer and uh, destroy their neural makeup. It's just... It's a travesty, and it, it is illegal. Right. It we don't need new laws. We don't need new laws saying, you know, don't teach this specific subject or don't teach that specific subject. We just need to enforce the child protection laws we have. We need to enforce the decency laws we have. Um, I'm speaking as an American from an American perspective. I can't speak for other countries. But in this country, we are literally ignoring the laws on the books that we have to protect children. Most, and most countries have We're doing it in a discriminatory laws. way. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've been seeing what's going on in the news. And I mean, America has indecent exposure laws. You mm -hmm. are not allowed to do most of the things that are being done. Yeah. That is correct. So um, it is disturbing that these things are taking place. And it is mm -hmm. disturbing that children are being attacked from both sides. Now is, is a very bad time in Western history to be uh, a child in a Western country because of all this, this nonsense. And uh, uh, I read very sad uh, experience of someone that went onto puberty blockers and... Uh, cross-sex hormones and all the operations and who now regrets that and it's the damage is done you just mm. that person has then a lifetime of being basically tormented in that condition what can they do and uh if we look at the suicide rate after 10 years at 40 percent after transition, it seems that it's obviously not working. So why 
why be putting children through this? It's uh, Munchausen's by proxy. It's just, it's just, it's child abuse. That that's what it is. There's no other way of saying it. It's, it's child abuse. Yeah. Don't okay. fix what ain't broke. That's correct. It's you know, childhood, puberty, adolescence were never meant to be perfectly smooth sailing where you're happy and joyful every day and you feel perfectly comfortable in your own skin no. and so forth. And the tragedy is that because of the way this has been handled, the children who are what we might call the it's extraordinarily rare, please hear me. But the children who are legitimately intersex and or have gender dysphoria, which is a real medical condition, who need treatment, psych psychiatric treatment, and it's a long-term kind of treatment, they're not being ident properly identified or properly treated because everybody's rushing in and, and popularizing this for everyone. And so, you know, it's, it's like with, with when, we, when it was, you know, believe all women, actual victims of sexual assault were kind right. of, you know, getting, you, right. you have well, to remember. Yeah. That's yeah. one of the things that have even, even a lot of radical feminists have been saying, well, the problem with that is that a lot of the actual victims are not being believed now because it that's was correct. just like this big boo -ha. So exactly. that's a problem too. Right. We should be studying have why people long... have gender dysphoria. We should be studying that, not coming up with really super expensive, fancy new ways to just quote unquote treat it with cosmetic surgery and drugs, especially in pre-rational children. Right. It's barbaric. In 2000, in 2017, I already said that this is going to become industrialized by the pharmaceutical industry. And I hate to be right, but that is exactly what, what is happening. And they don't care as long as they make money. Um, you have to remember, and it's, it's not like there's this big pharma conspiracy that I'm talking about. I'm talking about that industry in many of those companies, they profit off other people's sickness and pain. They don't necessarily uh, profit off making things that make humanity better. I know companies where there are individuals that are sincere in making medication that they think will help humanity. Unfortunately, there are corporations that don't care about that. And the fact that every large corporation seems to support it is even more suspect. You have to wonder why. Because these organizations, they don't do things when there's not profit involved. It's called corporatism. It's like capitalism on steroids without a conscience. And uh, it's, it's certainly harming children. That's why we're seeing a lot of these books also being pushed. We spoke about propaganda in another video. This is just an extension of that. How do you do propaganda? Well, you saturate the environment. So that is the only message that is being heard. It doesn't matter if it's true. It doesn't matter if it's false. It's just that is the only message you're getting. The other problem is that we see is that uh, a lot of children that are actually diagnosed with other emotional or mental conditions 
and a lot of autistic children are now identifying as being some other gender. So that is serious predation on a vulnerable group within a vulnerable group. Children are already vulnerable. And now you're taking these young people, even very small children that are confused and uh, pumping them full of things. Uh, it's, it's completely unethical. Um, I foresee that there may be some very large lawsuits in the future as more and more people wake up to what's happened to them. Yeah. Right. Um, another thing that we see is that gender dysphoria is actually incredibly rare. Yeah. It's not a common thing. Mm -hmm. Also, intersex conditions, the person is still either male or female. Correct. Even if they have a mutation, they are still either male or female. The majority of those are very much comfortable and know which sex they are. So it is not as if they are confused about what they are. They know they're a woman or they know they're a man. Um, many of those conditions have also serious health problems. Yeah, there, there, are, there are ones that are quite okay, but then there are conditions like monosomy X, which is just one X chromosome. They have a lot of health problems. Uh, there's trisomy, which is three X's, and they generally don't have as many. Sometimes it's not noticeable. That is a different thing. That is not gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. The other thing is we see fully grown adult males who suddenly say that they're women. And this is actually a paraphilia called autogynophilia. Auto is self, gyna is woman, and philia is, is the love of something. So basically, mm -hmm. they like the idea of themselves as a woman. Right. The character and, in Silence of the Lambs. Well, basically, yes. Yeah. And these are the ones that are pushing the strongest to go into women's bathrooms and to be in women's spaces. And that's a cause for concern. That's a genuine cause for concern. Uh, when we look at uh, prison populations, this was, uh, I believe, for the states. Um, in the general prison population, about 11% of the male population was there for, for sex crimes, 11% out of the total prison population. When we look at uh, people displaying autogynophilia, they were actually 48% of individuals showing that. It means the chance of deviant behavior by that group is much higher than the general male population. So statistically, they are more dangerous to a woman or to a child than your average male. This is such an important so point I think people miss. Uh, we've been seeing this with drag queens, that, that kind of thing, etc., that they're actually... Right. I mean, someone that doesn't have control over themselves in that area is more likely to not have control of themselves in that area in a situation where they feel that they can get away with that. 
So we're seeing and when a lot you of add, happening. Yeah. Of, when of, you add to that the the social perception that a woman or someone who cosmetically looks like a woman in any respect is less threatening than a man. Right. You know, then you begin to understand why when people say, but you wouldn't have been able to tell the difference. And women like me are saying, that's the point. <laughs> that's kind of the point is that, you know, if, if I can't tell the difference because of your cosmetic, difference, long hair, nails, high heels, a dress, makeup, or whatever, if that's what you're telling me. And I'm not talking about somebody, let's say like Blair White can't tell the difference where somebody has literally completely surgically change themselves and they are living as a woman they've been living as a woman and you know they're still a man they know they're a man but they're they're i don't know how to explain this um but, but that's it, that's actually gender dysphoria as opposed to autogynophilia right correct correct so that's so there's i can't tell the difference because i literally can't tell the difference like in any way shape or form and i was in the ladies restroom and i glanced to my right and saw long hair and like felt my guard was down a little bit but turns out that's an agp that's a and <laughs> that's that's literally a man in, in every possible respect and um you you finish the rest of the sentence so it, it it that is exactly the point right um we don't do if women and men for that matter don't go into these vulnerable places and do a complete once over on the stranger standing next to them that would be considered rude it would be weird we don't i mean right, we have right. our guard heightened slightly but we also have it lowered slightly so it, it depends on a couple of factors but we go into a place we presume to be private. We presume we're somewhat protected from the prying eyes of the public. It's why there's a door and another door and stalls and different things. And so that lowers your guard a little bit. You think you're sequestered away from the general public for, to do something that makes you vulnerable. And then, you know, you're heightened enough socially that you don't stare. You don't scrutinize. That would be right. considered strange. So it's a weird mix that people don't think about. We don't talk about that. People will make assumptions and presumptions. And I'm over here going, I'm sorry, you have it wrong. You're, you're just wrong. That's not how we think. That's not what we do. And you're making all kinds of judgments on why we feel the way we do about these policies that are just grounded in false reality. You, you, right. you're just wrong. The, the interesting thing I find is that people from really, really different viewpoints. I mean, we have uh, men's right activists. We have rad femmes. We have just average men and women. They all agree on this. Yeah. It's, it's, it's strange. It's the thing that seems to unite everyone. Um, and yeah, that's, that's telling you something. The thing is, when we look at this, so children are now being having their, their guard lowered by being taught, well, a girl can be a boy or, or vice versa or anything really goes. And then they have these predatory individuals. We have the pedophilia normalization movement. Uh, all these things are socially degrading. And kind of giving the idea that anything goes. The problem is, 
when this was attempted in the 60s, 70s, it failed because people were more traditional in their viewpoints of things like morality. Now it's working because many people have a very live and let live viewpoint. Unfortunately, bad people don't like to let other people live. So uh, we're now at a point where our culture, it probably won't survive this. If you want an example, uh, we can look at Afghanistan. So people say, okay, destigmatize pedophilia and then people will want to get help and they'll be fine. This is the argument that many groups are making. So they're saying stigmatizing it causes offense. Let's look at places where it's been destigmatized. That's all you need to do and look at the result. Afghanistan, it is as destigmatized as it can be. Okay, so under when the Taliban were not ruling, there is the cultural practice of Bachabazi, which is basically pederast men raising boys right. as girls. And yeah, you can, you can imagine the rest of what happens there. That is considered normal. What is the result for those boys? There is not less pedophilia in that society. There is more because it is normalized. Right. It is considered acceptable. Then under Taliban rule, they banned that. Unfortunately, the Taliban's view of women is less than desirable. So we have child marriage, eight, nine, ten-year-old girls being married off. It is considered normal in their culture. It is the normalization of that. Has it resulted in less child marriages or more child marriages? That's all you have to answer. What is the end result of any ideological group, of any movement, of any idea? You only have to consider the end result. For example, does the queer movement produce people that are more emotionally stable? Are they better communicators? Are they happier people? That's the only question you need to answer. If the answer is yes, then that's beneficial. If the answer is no, it is not beneficial. The simplest questions like what is a woman are the easiest questions to answer to know if something is factual or not. That is basic science. We have moved totally away from basic science towards the science of emotion or, or whatever that is, a person's feeling on something. So you only need to answer, is it beneficial? What is the end result? Does it make better people? If it doesn't, you have your answer. Yeah. Are children now happier than children 20 years ago? Has suicide rate gone up or down? These are very, very simple questions. What exists now that did not exist then? Well, it's interesting you mentioned the suicide rate because I checked it the other day and I was shocked to see that the worldwide, I didn't check the United States or Western countries exclusively, and I think that's skewing it, but worldwide over the past, uh, over the past decade, it's down. However, I did also read 
uh, recently that suicide rates go up the wealthier and the more peaceful the society is. Ironically, you would expect the opposite. But um, so there are hypotheses about why that is. But, you know, mine, my personal one is that the human being is anti-fragile. It needs a certain amount of stress and self-improvement. You know, you have to be kind of striving towards something or you, it, it, you're, you're vulnerable to this kind of thing. And I'm not saying it's a causal relationship. I think it's correlational, but the point is, it'll be interesting to see. We know the suicide rate in the United States has gone up in the last, you know, three years or so. It'll be interesting to see tragic, I project, but, uh, or predict rather, um, what it's going to be 10 years from now. Right. Because I was looking backwards 10 years. So now we're going forward 10 forward years. And years. I, think it's going to be a different result in part in large part because of children and people who were children and then become adults who are coping as you said with the side effects of having been so uh manipulated right and uh yeah that's 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 something to worry about um mm -hmm. i mean we can we can also compare talking about suicide rates, we can also compare because one of the things that is emotional blackmail that is often said is, okay, if children aren't affirmed, they will commit suicide. But mm. if we look at suicide ideation for teenagers, there is no difference in the number between regular teenagers and those who identify as something else. Overall figures. Why? Because children at that age are unsure of themselves. They're having a hormone rush. They make bad decisions. That's what it's part of growing up, unfortunately. So just saying, oh, you've had this, you've had this bad thought, let's pop a whole bunch of drugs into your body that will alter your biochemistry and destroy your your brain. Um, yeah, it doesn't doesn't seem like a very good uh, way forward. If someone has schizophrenia and they're seeing something around, it doesn't help to affirm it. It's actually bad for that person. Mm -hmm. This is the only condition that somehow people have decided, well, I guess we can make money off this, so we're going to affirm it. That's, that's disturbing. Mm -hmm very disturbing and um, I mean if if for example that we were they're using the 40% suicide rate and they're saying if you don't affirm it what's going to happen is these people will commit suicide okay so you're also saying that they've existed in all history this is not a, a modern phenomenon many people are saying all right, so we need to look at the suicide rates and look at all the bodies piled up of these people uh, with this condition, and uh, then we can prove our point. The problem is that doesn't exist. No. So, so unless you're going to say there's point, something in the water. <laughs> well, literally. Yes, literally, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but it might be something in the teaching rather than something in the water. 
you think, and it seems to make sense. And some of the same people who will be very quick to say that parents shouldn't take their children to church or shouldn't, you know, take their children to, I mean, you know, the Girl Scouts, the Boy Scouts, whatever, some of the thing, because that's indoctrination. Um, when you talk to them about environmental factors, oh no, not in this case. And I, I did also want to mention that we've been talking so far in this conversation about some worst case scenarios as far as detransitioners and people who wake up with terrible, terrible physical damage later on in life after going through these treatments. But I want to make sure people understand that even if they didn't, even if there weren't a physical manifestation of, you know, the, the, the damage, understand that if you wake up for lack of a better term later in your life and realize you were manipulated into making a decision. If you, if you, if you come into the awareness as many, many, many people do not just detransitioners, but people who've been groomed in other ways as well, people who are just groomed ideologically when they have that realization, it was not their choice that they did not in fact consent because this was done to them as a child. That is very damaging. That is traumatic in and of itself and can create a lot of, of turmoil and um, regret and suicidal ideation if it's extreme. So, you know, when you add the physical damage on top of that, I, I really wanted to make that point because there are people who have talked to me about their ideological grooming by similar people to have certain worldviews and so forth and how painful it was to realize that adults had lied to them, had manipulated them, had hidden real you know, facts from them, had taken advantage of their youth and inexperience. And it's a sense that you now your memories are destroyed. You, you, you can't go backwards. Uh-oh. Lost connection. Oh dear. You you can't think fondly. Uh, can, can you hear me now? You're you're stuck. Hello. Can you hear me? Uh, I was okay. I was lagging super badly. Okay, and there is there was I think part of why I was talking over you is the lag. The delay was such that you didn't. I thought you would pause and then you didn't hear me speak, so you kept going. So I don't okay. know. Yeah. I hope I'll be able to tweak that as I go back through it, but. Let me just pick up where I left off. So when children kind of wake up to this in their, you know, adulthood or young adulthood, it does something, or even, you know, if you're farther along, you could be middle-aged and have this happen to you. Anything in your past up to that point becomes painful to think about. And you're going to have to work through forgiving yourself. You're going to have to work through, you know, the resentment and the anger you feel towards those people. If some of those people are still in your life, now you may have severed ties that you have to deal with and relationships that end up broken. And there's, there are a few things 
more painful other than the physical. Physical is probably the worst. But then secondarily, looking at the life you've lived, and remember our lives are short as human beings, and not really being able to comfortably think about decades worth of it. Because it, it just brings back, you know, bad memories or it makes you feel, um, you know, guilty, resentful and all these negative emotions. It's like erasure. You have to almost erase that in order to move forward in a healthy way. And that's stealing, in my opinion. So you're not just stealing the person's present and stealing their potential, you know, future in terms of what they could have been. That was none of your business. That was for them to decide and become. But once they get there, you've stolen their past because that is not something people want to think about, those decisions they made that really weren't their own. Pretty much. Yeah, very painful. So where do we go from here? It sounds pretty bleak. How do we um, kids? Legislation needs to be such that it's protecting kids. I mean, there's there's no reason for children to be exposed to these things at school. They need to learn mathematics, English, biology, whatever, without any of the, the ideological nonsense. They need to be taught at a level that they can actually understand. None of this garbage is what children at the age of three or four can understand doesn't fit any of the models doesn't make sense whatsoever they most kids think that superheroes are real in some capacity so there's no way that you can say that they actually understand these abstract concepts the only person that you're convincing is yourself if you're saying that you're lying to yourself um i think education programs they should be teaching these theories to teachers properly so that they actually know because i think some teachers are just getting brainwashed into just teaching this nonsense because they feel that they have to or they feel that's the kind thing to do um legislation also needs to to pick up on child protection and make sure that uh these things aren't normalized now's the time to stop it yeah uh if if it is not stopped i can guarantee you that the the pedophilia normalization movement in a few years they will they will have made their mark and they will have integrated into the alphabet soup there are already people advocating for that uh right. people from many different organizations um, I'm busy on a project where I'm mapping out all the connections and it's bad. It's really bad. Right. I mean, this is a really far stretching across continents, across cultures, um, very disturbing. Uh, once again, I'm coming back to the point, know what your kids are, are studying, know who they have access to, know what kinds of excursions their teachers have planned visit the classroom some of these people are not particularly shy about what they're on about visit the classroom 
if the teacher has social media, just just check it out because they might be giving you very clear signals that you need to be concerned. Yeah. Right. Also, right. formative years, like I've said before, if you can, formative years should be spent with the parents, not not a kindergarten or something like that. Yeah. Right. Have as right. much have as much to do with your child as you can when you're they're young because you're not going to get it back. Don't care what skin color you are, what culture you are, this is just biologically that's what you have to do. And, and I'm, I'm, I mean it, affection matters. That's not to say every kid wants the same amount, but try to notice what, what signals your child is sending you about attachment. And if they are appearing to want more, um, give it to them. When they're babies, I think is the most important time because then I've noticed that the more they are physically connected to you in their infancy, whether you carry them around, you know, like wear them in a sling or wear them some kind of way um, or are holding them in some respect, they are actually more secure and more willing to break away from you in good and healthy ways, you know, and then come back and go and come back, whatever. And they're less likely to um, cling inappropriately either to you or to other people. Right. when they get older. So those, those attachments need to be, you know, they need to be broken off in a developmentally appropriate way. Right. And it really should be the child leading the way, the child leading the way. I see a lot of parents that are like, no, you know, you know, you're a big boy. You don't sit on my lap now when they're like five, you know, yeah, or, man. and they, you know, like, oh, boys don't cry. And I don't hug it. Or even little girls, it's like, you know, a pat on the head and, and, uh, and it's, tragic what we've done in the name of protecting children from abusers. I think even some fathers, some of them are like hesitant to show physical affection to their girls for fear that someone will misinterpret it. And that just breaks my heart. I I think a lot of fathers that have experienced that abuse as children are afraid of potentially yeah, miscommunicating or something because they're not comfortable with what's happened to them as a child. Right. So they don't have that connection, even though they want to have the connection with their children. Right. Yeah. I broken would say adults I, and broken children. Right. I would say if you have broken that as a parent, broken adults, yeah. if you have a hesitancy about hugging your children, about, you know, holding them or sitting with them while watching television, like with your arms around them or, you know, having them on your lap. And again, I'm talking about when they're small. Um, holding hands with them at the movies. I mean, I do this still. I have a 14-year-old daughter, and when we go to the movies, we hold hands. And yeah. it's just that little That's bit of con- yeah. yeah, that little bit of contact. When we walk around, when we go shopping, we hold hands. And I noticed in some other cultures, they do this regularly even into adulthood. The mother and the daughter, the mother and the son even will hold hands. And it's there are healthy ways to communicate attachment and emotional bonds to your children. And I find that the electronics are getting in the way. Some of the social messaging is getting in a way in the way we're adultifying our children much too soon. And they're looking to other people for those attachments, not consciously. It's a very deep emotional need. And I don't know, that's just something that I would like to add to the mix of this conversation because children with poor attachment bonds are much more vulnerable. Right. And they're, they're also much less likely to communicate that something bad has happened to them. That's correct. Yeah. 
so that's correct yeah a good good parental affection is uh is really important right. to illustrate that fact i'm not sure you might have heard this before but a certain hospital they they had all the children that are given birth to where the mothers cannot take care of the children so in that in that hospital these very young newborns are in a room basically in incubators to be looked after Mm-hmm. For some reason, the mortality rate of this particular bed was very low. And the hospital was perplexed as to why the child that is put in this bed always somehow has a higher survival rate. And the reason was that the cleaner came in at night and she picked up that child and held them and put them back and continue to clean. She just did it for that bed because obviously there's a lot of kids. And this was picked up on, on CCTV. And doctors realized, okay, children really need affection. So that just illustrates the point. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like anything major, but children are designed to want to be loved. And when I'm saying love, I mean in a clean, platonic parental way that is what they need affection proper love so the more you can cultivate that the better and it is not easy for some parents because of their background but as you practice it will get easier right exactly exactly or get help if it's really that hard for you that might be something that you seek some counseling about it might even Definitely. be the thing that wakes you up to the, that something happened in your childhood or that you need to deal with it. Maybe you thought you dealt with it, but you didn't. If you know that sometimes our children can be the catalyst to our own healing if we let them. And that's not to say you should ever use your child or project anything onto your child. I'm saying no. that you become a different person when you, ha- when you take a child into your life, whether it's your natural born child or you adopt a child. When you become responsible for a child, it changes you. It, if you you now become you're now a parent or a, a, a caregiver for that child and it changes you fundamentally to your core and that can you know elicit responses that make you aware of something you weren't aware of before that you thought you had dealt with so that can be um, a way you can help protect your child is by figuring that out as well because you're you're the guardian not the school not the daycare exactly. you're not co-parenting with them and uh, I, I, I'll say you, you mentioned that something changes in you. You literally change. Your brain, after being a parent, literally changes. For females, drastically, because you actually carry a child, if that's the child, if it's not an adopted child. But even if it's an adopted child, both males and females have brain changes because they're in a different mode. That's right. That's males right. will become more protective after they have you get really mellow guys become really uptight once they have kids because their brain chemistry changes yeah that's that's normal it is normal very normal that's why the first year after you have a child can be difficult on a marriage on a relationship because you are now getting used to literal like they're different people now they're everybody's going to respond differently to that and it's just one of those things that the more prepared you are that the change is going to happen 
the better you'll, you'll weather it. If you expect somebody to remain constant, remain exactly the same after they have children, it's you're in for a rude awakening. That's not how it works. Um, and I think what I see the institutions around us doing, the schools and, you know, other, even the medical uh, establishment is actively trying to make parents question their own gut instincts, question their, you know, their, their natural protective nature, question their common sense, any opinion that we might have about our child, they're telling us to disregard that, listen to us because white lab coat and degrees after our names, not all obviously, but I'm seeing a big shift in that direction. Um, and I have been cautioning parents, look who benefits be careful with people who have some kind of self-interest um, in, you know, you taking their advice about your child, because your interest is your child's interest. If if you're if you're a good parent, obviously, and um, and and that's that ought to be irrefutable. There's you should be skeptical about. They should demonstrate to you in so many different ways that they are not purely self-interested. Because look, there, are, there are brilliant teachers that really care about their students. Of course. And will will do everything they can to get their, their students to, to, you know, excel in every possible way. This is not, this is not ragging on teachers, which is a very, or used to be at least a very respected profession. Um, right, right. But exactly. at the same time, because standards for teaching are so low now, you have to be kind of careful. And uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, you know, uh, some parents have don't have access to to education for their kids that really teaching them any of the basic things they need to do. Right. So. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there there are a lot of there are a lot of things to look at to solve that problem, but I mean that's for a different video. But yeah, parents just need to be switched on. Exactly, because this is this is a very real threat, and I am so grateful to you, especially given the lateness of the hour, folks who are listening or watching. Uh, Alaric is in uh, South Korea, so <laughs> it's practically the middle of the night there. So I, I am so grateful that you took this time no to go through this vitally important information with us. Knowledge is power, folks. Um, the more you know about how your children grow and develop and how their brains function, the better you'll be able to protect them. And they are under threat right now from some very bad ideas Please and some malevolent people. Yeah. Please protect your children. Evil is real. It is out there. It is after your children. Please. Yeah. Please be awake. Please protect your children. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree. All right, I'm going to end the recording. Okay, so how do I do that? Uh, I don't know that. Wait, let's see if if I end 